May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So this story of a raving, naked man possessed by demons living among the tombs seems like something from another world. And of course, modern readers have often stopped to wonder if the demonic possession described in the New Testament was actually what we would now describe as severe mental illness, psychosis, mania, or schizophrenia. And I want to set that speculation aside because this is a powerful story of salvation and transformation. It's not a mere psychiatric case study. And yet this story of a feared and rejected exile left to rage and hurt himself on the outskirts of civilization sadly speaks to the experience of people who live with mental illness in our society. And I'll return to that shortly, but what about that host of demons? Now, if you were baptized, you made a vow, or if you were an infant, your sponsors made a vow on your behalf. Do you renounce Satan and the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? I renounce them. Say it with me. I renounce them. Okay. Now, that language isn't comfortable or familiar. Most of us don't talk about Satan and spiritual forces in everyday conversation. I kind of hope you don't. Um, So what does it mean? If we remember way back to the beginning of our Lenten season, we heard the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert. And those temptations to use spiritual power to turn stone into bread, to jump from the heights and trust that the angels would save him, and to command earthly power in human kingdoms, are about asserting dominance over nature, over people, and over God. The will to dominate is very much present in our world, and it builds what the theologian Walter Wink called the domination system. In our world, those forces of domination are behind imperialism, war, colonialism, the destruction and pollution of the natural world. In our communities, schools, and workplaces, the forces of domination are at the root of the subtle and obvious violence of racism, sexism, homophobia, and all fear and hatred of difference. In our homes, the forces of domination motivate the physical, sexual, and emotional abuse of children and intimate partners. The domination system is behind every wicked thing that denies life and denies God. I work as an art therapist, which is a psychotherapist or a counselor who helps people use art making and and art materials for self-understanding and healing. And you might remember that Jesus drew on the ground to save a woman from a mob and used clay or mud to help a man see. So I feel I'm in good company, but I digress. 
Most of my clients live in a supportive housing project on the downtown east side. And many of them have been homeless. Many of them use drugs. Some do sex work. Some experience significant mental illness. And I must admit that a few, at times when they were unwell, have frightened me. Much in the way that that raving, naked man among the tombs must have frightened the people of his community. But to a person, I have come to break bread, share laughter and tears and life stories with those people who at one time scared me. And the one thing I learned from each and every one of those people who became ill to the point that they appeared to be a threat to themselves and those around them was that each and every one of those people had experienced truly horrific violence and abuse. Now, not every person who experiences trauma goes on to experience mental illness or addiction. And not every person who experiences mental illness or addiction has been subject to trauma. But there is a robust and growing body of research demonstrating how traumatic experiences, especially in childhood, make us more vulnerable to both physical and mental illness. Many of you may know uh, the work of the local doctor, uh, Gabor Maté, who's written extensively on the subject. And in Toronto, there's a psychiatrist and uh, public health researcher named uh, Kwame uh, McKenzie. And he studied the factors that increase the chances of a person developing schizophrenia. And he's shown that while only some people have a genetic vulnerability to developing psychosis, those who do become severely ill are overwhelmingly more likely to be black or indigenous, to be refugees from war or violence, to have been bullied in school, to have been abandoned or neglected by their caregivers, and to have been sexually abused. They are overwhelmingly more likely to be victims of the domination system. So returning to our gospel, is it any wonder that the demons that afflict that wild man among the tombs are named after the brutal occupying Roman army, for they are legion. Jesus heals the possessed man, and he casts the demons into a herd of pigs, and that's when a really strange thing happens. The people of the valley, seeing the possessed man restored to health and wholeness, don't rejoice. They don't lift Jesus up on their shoulders and hold a parade in his honor. The people are terrified. And they ask Jesus to leave. So why is this? Well, first, and most understandably, at least some of these folks have, lost, have had their livelihood destroyed. Um, Eating pork is, of course, forbidden by Jewish dietary laws, and the presence of pigs shows that this community was populated by Greco-Roman settlers. And by casting a legion of demons into a herd of Roman pigs, it's as if Jesus is sending the demons of occupation back where they came from. And as satisfying as that might have been to Jesus and his Jewish companions, it doesn't sound like a great way to win favor in a foreign land. And in the Gospels, when we see Jesus using his divine power, we often see his human side at the same time. 
and sometimes in comic or absurd ways. So casting demons into pigs is the kind of act that seems like a good idea at the time, but it has some unforeseen consequences. But I want to draw you your, I want to draw your attention to a different consequence of Jesus' actions. The consequence of healing. So while the demons that afflict the man among the tombs are named for the forces of domination, I don't read this story as a story about good guys and bad guys. The people of the community did what they did because they didn't know how to help him. The... Um, the, the, the people who chained the, the man among the tombs di didn't know how to help him. The townspeople may have tried again and again to reach him, but they decided that the best they could do was keep him from hurting others. But when the ch people decided to chain this man in the wilderness, I think something changed inside them. The only way to live with what they had done was to believe that not only were they unable to help this man, but that nobody could help him. And the townspeople might have even begun to believe that keeping this man and his sickness outside their community enabled that community and the people in it to be whole. They might have believed that his sickness was necessary for their health, his confinement was necessary for their freedom, his rage was necessary for their peace. And his demons were necessary for the better angels of their nature. So when Jesus heals this man, the people of his community are terrified. Because everything they know about who they are, who is in, who is out, who is good, who is bad, who is sick, and who is well, has been shaken. And the idea that some person or some kind of person, or some group of people has to be on the outside. For us to have a strong, healthy, and prosperous center is alive and well. And we see it everywhere. It's in our world, in our communities, it's in our churches, and even in our families. Some of you have been that person on the outside. I have. And I've been on the inside, too. Have you ever seen a person who is intoxicated or out of contact with reality or dirty or desperate and thought to yourself, I'm glad that's not me. Or, I sure don't want that to be me. Or, oh God, I hope they don't come in here. I have. And you know all too well that there have been terrible times when the Japanese community was marked as dangerous and outside in this nation and this city. That gleaming, beautiful, emerald city of green glass towers with its squalid, addicted, and impoverished downtown east side. Again and again, our human nature wants to deny that beautiful truth we heard from St. Paul. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But you aren't Jesus, and I'm not Jesus, so what do we do? How do we heal the divide between us and them? How do we heal the suffering and the afflicted? We may not have the power 
to cast out demons, but we do have the power to name them. And we have been naming demons. Demons such as the domination ideology of white supremacy and colonialism that manifested in residential schools, a demon that possessed our church and our nation and continues to cause untold suffering. In my work as a therapist, very rarely do I ask someone to tell me what happened to them, because I know that bringing up painful memories usually just brings back the pain. And moreover, I don't need to ask because the signs are often obvious in a person's constant fears and fractured thoughts, in their tension-wracked body, or their need to use substances to take away the pain or stay vigilant against danger. But there is a time in many a person's healing journey when they feel a powerful need to tell the truth of what happened to them to name their demons. And if we are doing Jesus' work of breaking down the barriers between us and them, there will be times where we need to hear painful truths. Now Jesus tells the healed man to return home and declare how much God has done for you. And we must remember that as much as we might think that we Christians are good news to the poor and afflicted, the poor and afflicted are good news to us because they tell us what God does for her beloved children. We know we are fulfilling our calling to be the church in the world when our ears are open to hear the good news of the light from those who have walked in darkness. And as we hear this fantastic story of powerful healing, let's also remember Elijah huddled in the cave and the still, small voice of the Lord amidst sheer silence. I know, and from my life in the church and in the community, I have seen that for most people, the journey into healing does not begin with a dramatic exorcism or some less mystical but still miraculous intervention from a mental health practitioner. It begins with a simple human act, recognition instead of an averted gaze, a kind word, conversation over a meal or a cup of coffee, or any of the simple ways we share our humanity with one another. Healing is not always the same as curing, But healing is real. I have seen it happen even for those people who were so sick, they made me afraid. Jesus' work of salvation is the work of healing. That's what salvation means. In English, we have the word salve, meaning a healing ointment or any substance or action that heals. And I pray that we may have the courage to bring healing to our broken but eternally beloved world and our beloved brothers and sisters who tell us what God can really do. Thanks be to God. Amen.